Starts the drive, step back in the air. Oh, oh he step back and oh kiss myself. Big time plays, big, wow. big time plays. Good afternoon, everyone. This is the Podcast and Chill Show coming to you live from my house. Um, I'm one half of your host here today. I'm Vanessa Valley, also known as Rashawn Hall here in the city of Philadelphia. And right now what we're doing here is a very special, 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 special guest here. My man, uh, city councilman at large, Isaiah Thomas. How you doing? I'm good. I'm good. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Uh, thank you to your listener audience for tuning in. Appreciate them as well, too. They're, 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 they're pretty important in this. So thank you. Yeah, definitely. So a little about a little bit about us here. We're holding, uh, heard in over wow, we're heard in over fourteen plus countries here, as well as uh, our largest listening audiences in Philadelphia and also in California. And something that I've been trying to start for around past six months have been highlighting individuals who do great work, whether black or brown, uh, white, Indian doesn't really matter about race, but it's also it's more so to me about individuals who come from especially urban cities who do things that a lot of people sometimes may not know about and especially with you some of the work that you've done which we'll get into later has definitely put the city in a better standpoint i would say and even some of your point of views you know that i've researched and i've looked at has put our city and also the individuals that you serve the 1.5 million philadelphians here into a more positive light so you can go ahead and just uh introduce yourself to everyone and just make yourself at home. Go ahead. The floor is yours. Thank you. I appreciate that. I appreciate the compliments. Um, so again, I'm Isaiah Thomas. I'm a council member at large in the city of Philadelphia. Council member at large means I represent the entire city. Um, there are 17 total people on city council. Uh, seven of us are at large. The other 10 represent 10 different districts across the city. Um, but out of the seven at large, we have five seats that's reserved for the majority party, which are Democrats. Two seats are reserved for minority parties. And out of all the people on city council, I'm actually the youngest uh, member of city council, one of the youngest people to sit on city council um, in the history of the city. Uh, outside of that, I am born and raised in Philadelphia. I'm a product of the school district of Philadelphia. Uh, I went to Frankfurt High School, uh, so I'm pretty proud of that. Um, I'm an uptown kid, so I grew up in the northwest section of the city, went to Elwood Elementary School, Conwell Middle okay. School. Um, Went to uh, Penn State for undergrad, got a bachelor's degree in social science, uh, psychological and social science, uh, master's degree in education. And um, in my mind, I was going to be a teacher forever. I've taught adjunct. Um, I've taught kindergarten and everything in between. Um, love sports, former athletic director, former dean, still coach high school basketball. Got my coaching shirt on right now. I'm coming straight from practice. Um, and. Outside of that, you know, I just love our city. Um, I unapologetically love black folks as well, too. Um, I Amen try my to best one. to advocate for um, all constituents in the city of Philadelphia, but do, I do recognize that it's important uh, to ha to be the voice of the voiceless and too often as poor people and people of color in Philadelphia. So happy to be here. Uh, I sit on a few boards as well, too. Uh, that stuff isn't really important. Don't want to board the listening audience, uh, but would love to jump into dialogue around things that you feel like folks really care about. So thank you again for inviting me. That's just a little bit about myself. I'm married, married man, uh, two children, a nine-year-old and a one-year-old. Uh, so I, I love my boys. Um, that's me in a nutshell. All right. Okay. Okay. So there's a lot of things I want to get to, but I know, you know, you, again, you had a long day. Like sometimes being a city councilman and also you wear a lot of hats. 
like you said, everybody on city council sits on multiple boards, sometimes two, if not three, or if not four, you know, and as well, you also have your personal life with your family. So talk to me a little bit about how that process goes. Cause at the end of the day, sometimes you got to turn the switch off. If we're being honest, like you're a servant of the city, 100%, but you're also a father and a husband as well as like a coach as well. So you're a father figure in some sense to a lot of young boys in your own community or wherever community that you serve. So just talk to me a little bit how you deal with that balance. So for me, it starts with first and foremost, having a good support system and that starts at home. So I have a phenomenal wife and a great family who supports me in whatever it is that I, I try to do outside of that. I have a great staff in city council. My team is absolutely amazing. I'm so proud to be working with such a great group of people that have so much talent and care so much about the city of Philadelphia. But then even on the coaching side, such a great staff. Um, whereas though it's not, it's not just me. It's not all about me. It's, uh, it's a brotherhood. Um, it's, it's a family atmosphere and culture that we've created over the last, you know, 12 or so years that I've been coaching high school basketball. Um, and again, the different hats that I wear, it's about the support systems that's there. That's what put me in a position to be successful outside of that. Um, it's also about having routines and being disciplined. And so, you know, I, I'm very much a routine person. Um, I have a lot of systems in place. I operate with schedules and with systems and I have my non-negotiables. I don't start anything in the morning before eight o'clock. Um, you know, I try not to do anything. When I say anything, I'm, you know, I, I'm strictly family before eight o'clock, um, around eight o'clock. Then I'll start maybe looking at emails or, or things like that. But I start my day with my family. Um, I try not to do, take like formal meetings and things like that before 9 a.m. I don't mind working late. You know, I can work until 10 p.m., 11 p.m., but I, I do mind starting my day like that. And I think that's good for my mental because it always assures that the priority is my children, my family and making sure that those things are stable so then I can be that public servant, that effective public servant that I know I can be. So that's just the balance that I've tried to develop over the first two years of being in city council. I haven't been in that long. I went in 2019, sworn yeah. in in 2020. So most of my tenure has been through COVID. And, you know, it's tough to develop routines through COVID, but I think that uh, my, my family, my team and I, we've had some success. So I want to I want to also talk about this, as you know, it's not a secret, you know, this wasn't your first time, you know, running for city council. And when I saw your story, I was like, wow, like, it just speaks perseverance to me, number one. But talk to me about that. Like, why didn't you give up the other two? Because you ran for city council three times. And on the third time, you yep. were successful. And I saw articles about why you said to yourself that you were a more strategically individual out your third time running so talk to me about maybe some of the i wouldn't call it failures because nothing's a failure it's more so a learning experience so talk to me a little bit about the learning experiences that you had from your first two times and what changed on the third time around i mean the first time i ran i was a theoretical practitioner you know i didn't i, I didn't know what i didn't know and a lot of uh, what it takes to run for office i had never been exposed to i just wanted to make a difference i seen that there were problems in my city and i felt that i had a perspective a network and um enough of a support system to take a shot i mean i i didn't i didn't i mean i didn't win but i didn't lose bad i think i shocked a lot of people with how many votes i got the first time around because i was only 26 years old you know i wasn't a political person i didn't have a political job it wasn't anything like that i was a teacher i was just a guy who was trying to make a difference and i had a good showing and i think that turned some heads and gained a little bit of respect and so after i 
as I was going into election day, the first time I was running, I knew I was going to lose like before the election, <laughs> before election day started, because throughout the course of the process, I learned so many things that I should have done before I even started that by the time you get to the finish line, it's not like you don't see these people running ahead of you. <laughs> you know what I mean, they're running yeah. ahead of you. Yeah. So, you know, you're 100%. not going to finish the race as you approach the finish line. Um, you're not going to finish it in first place, but you, you finish the race. That's the key. Um, 2015 comes around. I'm, I'm in a much better position. I volunteered on a lot of races. I have much more support. Um, I feel like, you know, people still doubted me. And it was a very competitive race. 2015 was still, I would say, the most competitive race I've ever ran in. Uh, you had people come in ninth place, 10th place that raised over $300,000. You know, that's not normal for a council at large race. You don't normally, you normally, if you raise the money, not a guarantee you'll win, but you're normally in the mix. If five people win and you don't win, you're normally around six or seven. To to have people come in 10th and 11th place that raised north of $300,000 speaks to how competitive the race was. That didn't happen in 2011. It didn't happen in 2019. Um, so 2015 was very, very competitive, but I came in sixth place. I, um, you know, before Stacey Abrams went through what she went through or, uh, Andrew mm -hmm. Gilliam in Florida, you know, I, I had no no one would admit to have a race so close that it, you didn't know the outcome on election day. Um, mm -hmm. So after I lost in 2015, I had a lot of opportunities and doors open up for me. And I think that really put me in a position to get some level of government experience. So then when I came back in 2019, I had established some credible relationships. Um, I had strong name ID because I had ran twice. Uh, unlike in 2011 and 2015, I actually showed that I could raise money uh, because I had raised, you know, a few hundred thousand dollars. And in 2019, which was different than both times I ran before, there were incumbents who weren't looking for re-election. So for the first time, there were some vacant seats. And I think that was the most intriguing part about 2019 was that each time I ran before, you know, I had to try to convince people to cut somebody who was already in office. And a lot of people right. didn't want to do that. In 2019, I didn't have to convince anybody because there were people who were in office that were not going to seek re-election. And I think that those things kind of put me in a position to actually become the third highest vote getter in a primary of 2019 and the second yeah. highest vote getter in a general election. Over 170,000 votes. I mean, like, well, God, like that's that's huge. And and for most people know, for me uh, especially, I'm a big politics guy. I love politics. It's been a part of me for since probably 2012 when I interned at the mayor's office, uh, went to the National League of Cities as Mayor Nutter's appointee, served on different state rep campaigns, working all these type of things. And even- Oh yeah, you know it. Come on now. And even back then, there was something I was really, really proud of that we were able to in 2015 lobby for House Bill 1010 at the time, which basically set a president for individuals to get background checks at gun shows which was huge back then. So to try to try to, and especially in Pennsylvania, to slow that gun yeah. show loophole. That's so it, it, it was so big at the time. It was even talked about in the 2016 presidential election. And we mm. had a hand in that us. And we, we paired with uh, operation ceasefire generation progress. And we were, I feel like, you know, we got that bill passed. So like, this that's is amazing. my biggest thing. Yeah. And I appreciate that. And my dream was to become city council and then one day run for governor of Pennsylvania. Wanted to be the first African-American governor of Pennsylvania. So that was my path. And when I saw, I was like, wow, he didn't win the first time. He didn't win the second time, but he kept going. I was like, yo, that strikes something with me. Because it's like, what if I run a run in when I'm 27 and I don't win? That's three years from now. 
try again and try again during the next election. So that's really huge. And one thing that I want to say is you've been in office for two years and you've already done something incredibly huge. And I'm going to talk about it right now. So just recently you got a bill passed in, in a uh, city council to stop police officers from stopping individuals for minor infractions. So I know why that's big. and I'm pretty sure you know why that's big, but let's just talk to the individuals that are not from Philadelphia and, you know, not from this area or maybe not from this country. Why is that so important in a city like ours? I mean, for us in Philadelphia, something like that is really important because getting pulled over by police, if you're a young black, young person of color, young black man, it's a right mm -hmm. to passage. It's pretty normal. Uh, when you get your driver's license, uh, you, somebody who's either a mentor, father, big brother, elder, uncle, coach, somebody gives you the talk that we all have, uh, which is basically telling you you will be pulled over. And when you do get pulled over, this is how you conduct yourself. Uh, we buy our cars based on uh, the likelihood of being pulled over. Uh, we drive right. in neighborhoods based on the likelihood of pull, getting pulled over or not. Um, the amount of people we put in our car, right? Like these are things that we conscious, ah, nah, we not riding four deep. Y'all too ride with them. Just because we know that four deep puts us in a position where we're more likely to get pulled over. So these are uh, things that we essentially assimilate to, right? Because for us, it becomes the, a cultural norm. It's just a mm -hmm. means of survival. And then at some point you matriculate to a certain age and level of maturity and you realize everybody else doesn't live like this. Only, only we do. Um, on top of that, when you are actually stopped and you do everything the right way, even if it's nothing wrong with your car, you know, the way they search us is, um, a hundred percent inappropriate, you know, in this era of 2021, it's rape. I mean, I don't, it, based on the definition of rape in 2021, the way police officers search young black men in Philly, that, that, that it's the same thing. There's no way it's not. Um, so when you think about those lived experiences on top of the fact that the data suggests that this is not an effective way to combat crime. Uh, the data says that less than 1% of the time do these stops uh, lead to uh, a weapon or some type of contraband being found, you realize mm -hmm. that we got to do something different. And I think that was the motivation behind the legislation that you're talking about, which is the driving equality bill. Yeah, definitely. And just it rings true to me, especially what you just said about picking the car. I went to go get my first vehicle with my father, for example, and I was trying to get this and this and this. And he was like, you're not going to get that because all you're going to do is get pulled over. It's like a red flag to police. Now, they don't teach, and it's, and it's so weird for me having a criminal justice and economics background, they don't teach that in, acad in academia. They don't teach, all right, if a, if a black man is driving this car or so-and-so is driving this car, you pull them over. So this is something that comes from working the job, that you just automatically want to pick with an individual because you may have pulled over one person in your time and they found something. Now you pull over everyone. Like we see now, there's a huge, huge influx of racing and, you know, all these type of different type of sports cars in our city, like Dodge Chargers, Dodge Challengers, Durangos, and they get pulled over all the time simply because of the interaction with police. But I definitely feel like some of these people just want nice cars at the end of the day. So I feel like, you know, with that bill, it'll kind of slow that and make, just make cops think a little bit more. So that was, that was huge for me. And you also did something that I also wanted to pinpoint out because a lot of people may not know this, but in, in the last episode I was talking to with my co-host, we were talking about how everything's such a shortage. There's a food shortage, there's a coin shortage. And there's so many different things that go on, especially in big cities where a city like ours, we do a lot of outsourcing. You know, it's really, even though there's so many different types of local shops 
and there's so many different mom and pop stores. Philadelphia is huge when it comes to starting your own business. You can buy a piece of thing and go crazy with it. But for some reason, during the pandemic, there was a lot of outsourcing. And as we saw, couldn't get a burger. You know, restaurants were closing down. Businesses, boutiques closing down simply because there wasn't enough capital and there wasn't enough clientele and revenue to keep flowing through the doors. So what you did was you started and championed a bill that tried to keep a lot of the revenue inside Philadelphia. You care to talk about that a little bit? Absolutely. So the bill you're referring to is the Keep It Local bill. And what we said was we said if we're going to ask people to invest in Philadelphia to help us recover from uh, some of the tragedy, tragedies we were facing because of the coronavirus crisis, uh, we would have to start as a city ourselves. And so basically what, what the bill does is, is it forces the administration to create benchmarks as it relates to doing business with the city of Philadelphia, getting contracts with the city of Philadelphia, and it forces them to have a conscious effort to be able to provide more vending opportunities and more contractual opportunities for local businesses to be able to do business with the city of Philadelphia. Um, I think it would be hypocritical of us to ask other people to invest in our city if we're not doing it ourselves. And when we say doing it ourselves, what does it look like? What is the percentage? What percentage of contracts are, are, are staying? What percentage of contracts aren't? So the administration uh, was able to create some benchmarks as it relates to uh, what percentage of contracts will be allocated to Philadelphia-based businesses, and our legislation would require them uh, to assure that if they don't meet those benchmarks, they create a comprehensive plan as it relates to what they'll do the next fiscal year to assure that they meet those benchmarks. So we're excited about the fact that that bill has been passed in the law and that first round of data should be available within the next few months so we can see how we did as a municipality as it relates to investing in Philadelphia businesses, investing in local businesses. And I think that's something that's important because, you know, based on our tax structure and based on some other things that's, you know, applicable to Philadelphia only, a lot of times people say it's hard to do business in Philly. And so one that's of my true. goals on, um, as a member of city council is to begin to change that narrative. We don't want people to feel like it's hard to do business in Philadelphia because in the midst of thinking about the recovery, a lot of entrepreneurs out here, right? A lot of people looking to relocate. A lot of people look at business from a different lens because the COVID crisis forced them to do so. We want them to choose Philadelphia. We want you to relocate your business in Philadelphia. So if we can't do it from a fiscal perspective because our tax structure isn't necessarily ideal, what other incentives can we offer? And one of the incentives is the opportunity to do business with the city of Philadelphia. Right. And that's a, that's a huge thing because especially for um, you know a lot of people that provide a public service, government especially city and state government is the highest level of procurement throughout our country the government funds so many businesses and so many different things whether you're a cleaner you know whether you even sell tissue dispensers you know you come to the city the city has actually a contract procurement process that's actually really really huge but it's also very very complicated for new individuals to navigate it for my, myself for example me and my co-host who's not here today have a cleaning business Right. And we were trying to look at some city type of contracts, but navigating that um, by ourselves was definitely a bit daunting. So I would say to you, if anything, that maybe there can be some type of, you know, program to help, you know, younger individuals get in more so to bidding and understanding government contracts so that we can create some more of that government revenue. Because not everybody wants to do one thing, even though sometimes, especially in big cities, one idea may be oversaturated, but there's definitely a learning barrier that I would say 
for these type of things. So maybe some sort of program or an initiative like that could possibly help. I don't know. But one thing I really want to touch on here is, like you already said in the beginning, you're the youngest council member on city council, right? So with that being said, how is that interacting with individuals, you know, like a council president, Daryl Clark, or a Curtis Jones, or a Kenyatta Johnson, who've been around, who've seen what's going on? Like, how is there mentorship? Has there been a lack, like a feeling of, hold on, young blood, listen, we got this, or how 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 is that maybe shaped or even hindered? You know some of the things you're getting you're trying to get done. I mean, everybody has their own uh, experience, so you know I think a mm-hmm. big part of it is based on your personality. I, I I'm a team guy, right? So you know I recognize what it means to be a senior and a captain of the team, uh, but I also recognize what it means to be a freshman and new to the team. And city council is a team, whether you want to be that or not. Um, that's what the city of Philadelphia needs us to be because we're the legislative elected branch of government that they asked to govern for the next four years. So um, mm-hmm. I feel like it, it, when you're thinking about the constituents, it's best to operate that way as a team. And, you know, I think I do a good job of coming into council as a freshman, uh, somebody who has different perspective, different set of lived experiences, um, pretty talented, pretty good team, want to get stuff done, but also recognize that there are people who were here before me. You know, a lot of times when you come from spaces that I come from, specifically spaces of um, African center based education, you move a little different and you understand the path that was created for you by the elders. And at the end of the day, exactly. a lot of the people who are on council right now, they supported me in 2019. Some of them even supported me in 2015 when I lost. Um, and at the end of the day, these are people who look at me like a little brother. So for me, it's been a phenomenal experience as it relates to working with my colleagues and working with other members of council. And I think a big part of that is not just because I'm young, but because I'm, I like to think I'm humble. Other people don't, but I think I'm, I think I'm humble. And um, I'm also right. willing to learn. Like I will sit and just listen because at the end of the day, a lot of Philadelphia politics and the things that happen is no book you can read to find this stuff out. You know, no. it's nothing like no. the wisdom that the elders have and just being able to sit and listen to their lived experiences, put you in a position where the likelihood of you making the same mistake that they did slims down significantly. And a lot of them, they don't want you to make the same mistakes they did. They want you to be better than them. And I think for me, that's a big part that I've been able to do is just develop personal relationships with the council presidents, the Curtis Jones, the Kenyatta Johnsons, especially the black men, because, you know, they they've been through what I'm going through right now. And a lot of them got an idea of where I'm trying to go and they want to help me get there. And I appreciate the support. So it's been great. It hasn't been much sit down and wait your turn. But at the same time, it hasn't been much me stepping on their toes either. Right. Like certain things right. they've been doing and, and, and have been advocating for long before I got there. And certain things work. Certain things don't work. When it doesn't work, I offer my opinion. A lot of times they receive my opinion. When it works, I respect the foundation that's already been laid and try my best to support whatever initiative it is that they've already started. So um, I think that team mindset and that team mentality is what has put me in a position to be able to have some success. That's great. Uh, Great answer on that. And what I want to touch on, you know, because you keep saying, like, you know, I'm a team guy, you know, with basketball and all this type of stuff. Basketball is a huge part of my life. I love basketball. I live, sweat, and breathe basketball. I watch basketball all the time. But what I will say is this about basketball. In Philadelphia, there was an organization in Philadelphia 
called the Police Athletic League, right? Huge, especially in the 2000s, right? Huge. Everybody was in power at one point. Being from the city of Philadelphia, sixth largest city, I think it used to be the fifth, I think we got taken over by Houston, but sixth largest city, top 10 at least, largest city in the city of Philadelphia. I feel like we're moving away from being a basketball city. And the reason why is because, and I know, and, and, and I'll tell you why. The reason why is because there's not a lot of opportunities, gyms, rec centers, and all this type of stuff where underprivileged youth, they have to pay and they have to go seek it and find it. You know, and even for myself, like I, I have a membership and I still have to go pay and find places to hoop at, right? So my thing is, how do we increase the level of, you know, I would say participation for basketball in the city? Because your neighborhood rec center, it closes at a random time. Things aren't always open. A lot of violence in the city. We're leading right now in terms of homicide rates and all that type of stuff. You can't really play outside. So what do we do as from a city perspective to try to increase that basketball? Because you think about it, when you're playing basketball, you're doing something productive, you're exercising, and you're also building team building skills, communication, and brotherhood or sisterhood for all that matter. So it's like, what? how do we fix this or how do we keep something going that we have already? Good question. Um, I, I do think Philadelphia is still a basketball city. I think the Eagles are the most popular franchise. I think more people love the mm -hmm. Eagles than any other organization. But I think more I mean, people play basketball. Well, not, not me. I'm a Sixers guy. But I think more people play basketball than any other sport. And it's not just because of boys. It's all because of girls, too. Like, amongst girls, mm -hmm. basketball is really, really popular in Philadelphia. With that being said, I don't think it's as popular as it used to be because of – I think COVID has something to do with that because we now have a generation of young people who's – even more entrenched in technology and video games and things that don't force you to socially interact with people than what we've seen in recent history, including social media. Um, so I think that's part of it. But I think another part of it is that, you know, Philadelphia is the biggest poor city in the entire country. And that yeah. impacts basketball as well, because a lot of times these guys who are running the camps and the clinics and stuff like that, they're charging. Whereas though, you know, I'm 37 when I was a kid, it was almost unheard of for you to charge a kid to work them out or to charge a kid to play basketball. And nowadays, it's actually exactly. pretty unheard of for those things to be free. It's, it's, yes. it's taking a flip. But a big part of that is because people are using basketball as a hustle because it's not the opportunities in the city aren't they don't they're not as uh, economically advantageous as other places. Right. So. In right. Philadelphia, we're growing a lot of jobs, but most of those jobs are like retail jobs that pay, you know, $40,000 a year or less. And at the end of the day, a lot of people would rather choose to just try to hustle instead of having a nine to five where you only make it $35,000 a year. So I think part of the uh, economic disparities that the city is facing has lapsed over into the basketball community. And I think that that has had somewhat of an impact on why you see a lack of free opportunities, but there are a lot of programs. There are a lot of opportunities in the city. I think the biggest problem is that because basketball is so popular that everybody's trying to make money off of basketball, right? So it's so popular and our city is so poor, you know, every league, every clinic, every open gym, you know, everything costs money unless you probably plan for your school. And so that's why everything I try to do is free. My, I do a camp every year. The last week of August, we have over 150 kids um, every year. Uh, between the last two weeks when we do our camp and it's free right we ask 
we asked for a twenty dollar registration fee. And to be honest with you, we only asked for that because when you make stuff like completely free, people kind of take advantage Everybody's of it a little bit. Yeah, but yeah. it's just it, it, the number of people don't bother us. It bothers us when you treat it like it's free, right? Like you come on Monday and then you mad at somebody, so you're not coming Tuesday, and your parents let you do that. But if we just charge your parents and force some skin to be in the game, you know, you know how black folks are. Oh, I'm gonna get my money's worth. Then no, you ain't staying yeah, home. I paid for that. One hundred percent. Right. So that's the mindset that we want because at the end of the day, we're trying to teach quality life skills through sports. And the last thing you want to teach young people is to quit when there's some some level of uh, adversity. So um, I, I think I think it's still popular. I think the poverty has a, a, a somewhat of an impact on it. I think what you talked about, about POW centers closing, like a lot of POWs and Salvation Armies and Boys and Girls Club have closed over the last 10 to 15 years. And then when you look at staffing issues around rec centers and combine that with some of the violence, you are going to see a significant de decrease as it relates to free programs and opportunities for young people. Right. Just to just to expand on that a little bit, I'm from the like lower West Philly area, which is notoriously known at the bottom. Right. And down there, there was a huge rec center on 34th Street that we that we use all the time. We will go there right after school. We play. They give you lunch, snacks or whatever. Drexel's taking it over, you know, and this is and this is a city. This is a city park. This is a city rec center, a legendary city rec center connected to a library. We can't even play. And even now, since I still go to my old neighborhood and I'll check it out, can't go. Drexel's playing handball or something like that. And it's just, that type of stuff burns me up because it's like, when I, my, the neighborhood wasn't the best when I was growing up and it's not the best now, right? Granted, it's been gentrified a bit, but that still doesn't take away any violence more so. They just push it to a more controlled area. So when I'm looking at this, I'm like, when things got tough, we went to go hoop, we went to go hang out in the gym. Where are the kids going? Right. And so my question to follow up just a little bit, I know we're short on time here, but my question to follow up is, could there possibly be a city initiative or some type of pilot program that would bring back free basketball leagues in the city? Do you think that's possible? Actually going to do it because um, I agree with you and I was going to do it for elementary school because for high school, a lot of times you have AU and you know, high school mm -hmm. ball it's, it's just once you get to high school, you know, everybody kind of got their hands in a pot. But elementary school and middle school, you know, it's not the, that pile league, the middle school league, boys and girls club, stuff like that just don't exist. Those free leagues don't exist like it used to. Um, the thing that held me up was COVID. Um, once COVID hit, yeah. then, you know, everything kind of hit the fan. But I mean, between your energy and the popularity you have with your listener audience, you know, I'll open that invitation to you to be able to come and work I'm with my office it. so that when we get a little bit more flexibility around COVID, we can put that free league together for next year. And, you know, it could be that league, that signature league that we need in the city of Philadelphia that's just free for the kids, um, whether it be yeah. the spring or the summertime. I, I would be 100% down for that. And, you know, the craziest thing, the hardest thing, I, I offer this stuff often, the hardest thing would be paying for it. I mean, not paying for it, running the league. Yeah. I can get the money. Yeah, There's nothing for me to get the money that it would take. But you got to have that trusted person, right, who's, like, not going to cheat, right, like, not going to let kids who are too old play with certain age groups, who's, mm -hmm. you know, not going to lose their temper when that parent comes to the game and they're acting a fool. You know, you just, you just got to have the right people running stuff. And it's just hard to find good people. And that's why, you know, go back to your original question, that's why I'm so blessed to 
have some level of success in so many different spaces because I have such good people around me. Um, unfortunately, I don't have that person to run the league yet around me. But, listen, you know, maybe that's something listen. we can work on together. 100%. And I'm glad you brought that up because, you know, one of the main things I really wanted to talk to you about, I said, man, he loves basketball. I love basketball. And, you know, to see that happen in my neighborhood, even though, granted, you know, you're, you're a council member at large, so I can I can bring that issue to you, right? It's not just, oh, it's not in my district. Sorry. You know, I can bring that issue to you. And it's like, hey, look, that's something that's not okay. Because that's a public place that kid, that's a refuge right there, right? We talk about it takes a village. That was a village hideout. You see what I'm saying? So that's important for us to have. Granted, that's a more local issue, but this is what it's for, you know? And I want to also talk about, something here that I, uh, I I sort of briefed you on. I wanted to make sure I wasn't going to go blindsided in it. It's a real hot button topic right now in the city with this whole uh, Tangle Titles thing. You know, uh, the Pew Research Center, they came out with a report basically saying that over 10,470 families have experienced something of a, of a Tangle Title. And I know that uh, Councilwoman Gautier and uh, Council... Councilman Curtis Jones actually lead an initiative right now in city council about Tangle Titles. And they, and they brought it up during the Housing Neighborhood Development and the Homeless Committee that they have. And I just wanted to just give you a couple of interesting facts that I may, you may or may not already know. So, so Philadelphia has at least 10,407 Tangle Titles, which has locked families out of approximately $1.1 billion in home equity. So essentially that's dead capital. And out of the top 10% of families with a tangled title, they have a median income of $28,636. So without proper aid from the city, without the PDI program, without the LOOP program, without UPA, without Philadelphia VIP program, it will cost in probate fees $9,198, which is approximately one third of a family's income. Okay. And in Philadelphia, it's crazy because 48% of Phil Black Philadelphians, 48% own their home in Philadelphia. However, only 20% and college educated, only 28% have a will. So there's a reoccurring issue there. And I wanted to bring that up to you because, you know, I am a uh, reaction of a tangled title. You know, my grandmother had a home and, you know, we didn't, she didn't have a will a proper one, not recognized by the Department of uh, Records. So we lost the house, you know? So those type of things, it resonates with me because when I look at it on paper, African-Americans per year spend around $4.1 billion in capital to the United States, but there's $1.1 billion locked up in capital in our city. And out of the 67 counties in, in Pennsylvania, this is a unique issue to us, the largest city in Pennsylvania. And it's and it's weird, you know, Commissioner Gore has been doing a good job uh, going after it, creating the PDI program to try to defer things like that. But, you know, granted, you know, you're a councilman at large. So it's like this issue affects everyone, even though in the top 10% is the third district, the fifth district and the eighth district. But this is an overall, overall arching issue. So I just want to hear, you know, some of the before I go any further, uh, some of some of like the feedback from what I just said. So I'm not on the housing committee. Um, I don't right. I don't really tackle housing as one of my top issues. I think enough members of council work on housing stuff that, you know, you yeah. got Councilmember Sanchez, uh, Councilmember Brooks, Gaudier, mm -hmm. Kim, Johnson, 
as well as Dom's our council president. Yeah, Dom's in it. So it's a, you know, you got yeah. over half the members of council who work on housing stuff, and every district person must touch housing stuff. But with that being said, the tangled title issue, um, anytime I get the opportunity to support the different initiatives that come out of council, I mean, you named a lot of programs. And uh, Philadelphia actually have more programs to protect homeowners than any other big city in the country because, you know, our best way to fight gentrification is to keep you in the home that you're in right now. And at the end of the day, um, we don't want anybody to experience what your family went through. It's one thing to say that you want to sell your house so you want to have access to that capital and that wealth. Uh, but it's another thing for your family to have worked for generations to put yourself in a position where this is your property and it's um, taken away because of a technicality. So with that being said, one of the things that's happening is um, we just passed uh, one of my colleagues, Councilmember Gilmore Richardson, who is another housing person. Um, Great she has an initiative. Yeah, she has an initiative right now that will provide a one pager um, of information that will go to families with death certificates when someone does pass away. So that if you are in a situation where your house can be one of those 10,000 that you talked about, people have the paperwork that they need to be able to make the moves they need to make in the right amount of time. We want to keep people in their home, right? Like I, I, yes. I could see that people are very skeptical about that because we see the type of gentrification that's happening in the city. But the city council has so many programs. The city of Philadelphia has so many programs to try to keep you at, in your home. And, and even the mm -hmm. cost that you talked about. If you're a direct relative, you don't have to worry about those costs, right? Like a lot of those costs and fees and taxes were put in place to be able to assure that developers uh, had to pay their fair share because they're already getting mm -hmm. a, a huge, huge break with the 10-year tax abatement. So, so things like the transfer or uh, the transfer tax and other taxes that you would think you would have to pay that would come to that one-third of, of family income, a lot of those fees are waived if you talk about a situation that you just an example of grandmother, you know, children or the grandchildren or, you know, daddy, the son or mother, you know, whatever. When it's that family um, situation that's taking place, those fees don't apply. Those fees apply when you're a developer and you're trying to sell your property or, you know, you're looking to make a lot of money off of a particular piece of, of property. And, you know, the city wants to assure that the city gets its fair share as well, too, because of the 10 year tax abatement. So um, I, it's an issue that we're all concerned about. A lot of my colleagues have innovative ideas and are championing the Tangle title issue. And, you know, I'm proud to vote with them yeah. and support any initiatives that they have, as well as spreading the word so that people know, you know, register your will, register your will with the city of Philadelphia. Make sure that, you know, you um, you put yourself on that deed. Right. I'm on my father's deed for his house. Uh, my father just turned 72. Um, those things are important is um, conversations that's often uncomfortable, but it's even more uncomfortable. Yes. when You have to have a conversation with somebody who's, now telling you that your house is no longer your home. Right. And even with the Tangle title, you know, now you can't sell your home. And when you can't sell your home, it leads to dilapidation. It leads to a lot of other issues within the city of Philadelphia that we see. And there is um, one thing I want to just stick on this real quick. I, I shared with you a graph. And after I go back and edit this, I'm going to put the graph in uh, above me here. And there's three charts on the graph and one chart was given to us by the pre the Pew Research Center. Now the other from the Department of, of Housing and Home Development and in the same districts that I mentioned that in the top 10% where, you know, there is, um, you know, the, the level of median income as also where the most tangled titles are in the same area that is the highest rate 
for since 2015 to 2020 as the highest rate for shooting victims. And that's also the highest rate for males 16 to 64 who are not employed in the past 12 months from 2015 to 2019. So I would never say there's something of direct causation, but there has to be some type of a correlation between those three to the terms of where individuals cannot afford their homes, they're becoming dilapidated. When you have an abandoned home, listen, me and you both understand that. People sell drugs, people squat, people shoot, and there's more so high, higher levels of unemployment due to the fact of the areas that you're in. So I just wanted to really bring that, um, you know, to your attention. And the fact that you're saying that, you know, you're going to champion that and like, you know, you're going to support your colleagues means a lot to me simply because like, this is definitely a more personal issue that I wanted to make sure that at least, you know, you had some sort of understanding between like, you know, right here with us. So I really do appreciate that. Now, I know we're a little bit over schedule here, uh, Mr. Councilman. So I'll say, do you have any like last remarks or anything you would like to share? to follow me on social media so they can stay up to date with some of the things that I'm doing. I'm Candidate Thomas, as well as C.M. Thomas on Twitter, C.M. Thomas PHL on Twitter, uh, Isaiah Thomas for Philly on Instagram, uh, Councilman Isaiah Thomas on Facebook. And just to close out, um, the last point that you brought up as far as the relationship between um, some of the things that we see as far as tangled titles and issues with home ownership as well as gun violence, you can also probably add poor schools um, to that list. I would yes. bet that those same. Yeah. So my last point to just close this out. So I think that the data you talked about was important. I think that if you analyze the data, you will also see a relationship between those same neighborhoods and failing uh, schools, as well as uh, those same neighborhoods in the spike in hit and runs that we're seeing in the city of Philadelphia, 2020. Mm. Um, so more hit and runs that led to fatalities than any other time in recent history, nearly over a decade since we've seen um, this many hit and runs that led to a fatality. I think that we spent a lot in 2020 in the house, and it was still something that we've seen. So basically all these things that we're talking about is simply uh, symptoms of a disinvestment in a neighborhood, a disinvestment in communities of color. And that is one of the things that I love about being on council is to advocate and to fight for those folks who traditionally haven't gotten stuff and to be able to try our best to provide as many resources as possible. So um, I think that that map that you sent is really, really interesting. Uh, the data is telling, and we got to put ourselves in a position to be able to do something about it so that story is different. That's perfect. Well, listen, Councilmember Isaiah Thomas, listen, I know you've probably had it. We, we've been doing this for about a month now. You know, we finally got a chance to, you know, lock it up and get and get some time in. I really appreciate that. Shout out to you. Shout out to your staff. Shout out to Dom for being so helpful with all this, planning it, getting it going. And listen, I'm your host, Vanessa Velli. I'll be here every day, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, until they kick me out. You can follow me on Instagram, Twitter, uh, at Vanessa Velli. Follow me on LinkedIn at Rashawn Hall, B-A-S-M-S, -S -S, I think. And listen, love you. Peace.